98. Hear the word of the Lord. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Blessed Lord, you have caused your holy word to be written for our learning. And so would you help us to hear it, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it this morning. Give us your patience and comfort through your word so that we might embrace And hold fast to the hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be here again this week. This past week uh, was a pretty full week for us at Philadelphia Baptist Church, for Laura and I, as we tried to set aside time to get to know and meet many of you. Uh, so it's good to see some of you for the second time and some of you for the third time and a few select of you for the fourth time this week. From men's breakfast to senior adult lunch to midweek to women's brunch yesterday, we've heard a lot of names. We've forgotten some of them, which we will beg your forgiveness for if we ask your name in the lobby. And we've been able to hear many of your stories of how the Lord saved you, how he brought you to faith in Christ. And then we've also heard... Wonderful stories of the ministry of this church body, both through the the highest of highs for some of you, and somehow this church has carried you and walked with you by God's grace through the valley of the shadow of death. And in each of these meetings, with, with every story that we have heard, I've been reminded over and over again of the thing that has brought us together and the thing that ultimately will bind us together. And it's not a shared southern culture, a sense of place that we're all from the same place. It's not age or stage of life, how old our kids are. It's not our our background, whether we came to know the Lord when we were young or when we were old or even what church we currently attend. The thing that binds us together, that unites us, is what we just sang. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved wretches like us. We once were lost, but now we're found. We were blind, but now we see. The grace of God that flows in the gospel, that we see in the gospel, is the lifeblood of his church. And his blood shed for us, shed for his people, has brought us together and made us into a family of brothers and sisters, all seeking to glorify and exalt our Savior Christ. 
And today, as we continue our study in the book of Titus, we're going to just slow down a little bit and marvel at the goodness of this gospel and this good news of the grace that flows from Christ. So in Titus 2, 11 through 15, God, through his spirit, wants to teach us that the grace of God that flows from the cross saves, it sanctifies, and it secures God's people. And to organize our time together, we're going to just look at those three realities flowing straight from this text. I hope to show you in this text what God is doing with this, showing us the saving work of God's grace the sanctifying work of God's grace and the security that he gives us in his grace. My prayer as I've been thinking and praying about you this week is that you would walk away reminded again, afresh even, of the grace of God that we see in Christ's cross, of the glory that we see at his coming, and that all of that would flow to strengthen you as you desire to walk in lives of holiness and obedience to him. So if you don't have your Bible open, open to Titus 2, 11 through 15, and we want to study and submit ourselves to God's word together this morning. And just to remind you of where we have been and what is Paul, what Paul is doing with this letter, just look up or flip back a page if you need to, to Titus 2, verse 1. So this passage we talked about last week. And there Paul is telling his co-worker Titus, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then glance down to Titus 2.15, so the first verse, the last verse, they use this command. It's actually the same word in the original language. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So Paul wants Titus to be teaching, to be declaring these truths in the church. And what lies between these two commands to teach, to declare, is a couple of things. What we saw last week is a portrait of what a godly life and healthy discipleship looks like for people in these congregations as they're wanting to follow in the ways of the Lord. And then in this section, we get to see the gospel, the the foundation stone that is set, that all of those commands, the things we've been talking about the past few weeks, they just flow right out of this. Godly living is not devoid of gospel doctrine, but this gospel doctrine is the foundation stone for that living. Uh, youth in the room. I think I think on Wednesday night you talked about linking words. I believe I was told that was the case. So you learned about words like therefore and so that. And you can get to put it in practice right now. So look at verse 11 at the very beginning, the very first word of our passage for. And what that's telling us is that all that godly living, the, the commands to older men, old, uh, older women, younger men, younger women, all of that is founded And based upon what we read here in verses 11 through 15. And that has been Paul's primary point throughout this book. He's wanting to tie sound doctrine, sound teaching, and show that it produces godly living. And that godly living then adorns the gospel. It's this beautiful circle of showing the beauty of Christ in the gospel and the holy living that flows out of that. And here he begins talking about the gospel in verse 11 by saying the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God that flows from the cross saves. When I was in college, uh, I worked for a summer at a Christian camp in Northern California, and we flew into Sacramento. I took a, a van ride about four and a half hours 
north. And I had been in Southern California before, but never, never in that part of the country. And I spent four hours just staring out the window, amazed by mountains that looked like they were maybe a five minute drive, but it's like 30 minutes and they're just getting bigger and bigger in the window. I've never seen anything like that. For the first couple of weeks, it felt like waking up in Wonderland just to look around and see the beauty around you. But give it, give it a month or so and you just notice it a little bit less. The sunrise gleaming off the mountains is not quite as captivating as, as it once was the first couple of weeks. And then give it two more months or so and the walk around property just, you, you hardly ever lift your eyes to look. And as the saying goes, familiarity can breed contempt, or at the very least, it can kind of dull the sense of wonder that you feel at something like that. And this truth that God has graciously saved us through his cross, it is one of the primary, most important things we find in Scripture. But if we're not careful, this is the truth that we dull our hearts to. The things that we say so frequently that it can lose impact. But this is, again, one of the most plain teachings in all of Scripture. At God's providence this morning at Christ Fellowship Church, uh, we're walking through the Gospel of John, and Bart's preaching this morning on John 3.16, maybe the most memorized verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is one big story. All pointing to the gospel, the good news of Christ. And all the scripture is telling this one story. And the story doesn't just begin there. And it doesn't just begin with you and me. It actually begins with a perfectly holy God who is good and who does good. One of the unique truths that you should know about God. This is unique if you compare the God of the Bible to the gods of Many old religions at the time the Bible was written, if you compare it to many of the religions today or even just many of the things that people believe about reality today, one of the things that's unique is that the very core of this God is love. Love is at the core of his character. And so from the beginning of time, he has existed as Father and Son and Holy Spirit in perfect love and joy. And so when he decides to create humanity in Genesis chapter 1, It's not because he's really bored and needs some playmates. It's not because he needs some servants or slaves to do something, or he needs more soldiers on his team against a rival God. He actually creates out of an overflow of love and glory to share his joy, his life with his creation. And then in mercy, he doesn't just create and step back, but he actually comes and dwells with his creation. He speaks with them. He walks in their midst as their gracious king. But instead of being content with God as their king and to live in his presence, Adam and Eve instead choose to listen to the lies of that ancient serpent told the devil. They didn't want to believe what God told them was good and evil. They wanted to choose for themselves what would be good and evil. And in doing that and choosing to walk in disobedience to the Lord, the world as they knew it, which was perfect and beautiful, it fractured and broken. And the world as they knew it has now become the world as we know it. All of creation that lived in harmony was overrun with thorns and sorrows. Nature is red in tooth and in claw. The the man and his wife, Adam and Eve, who were meant to picture God's rule together, to be co-heirs, to be working together to fulfill the commands of the Lord. 
Instead, their relationship is fractured and they, they are working against one another so often. They experience pain in the callings that God has given and God has called them to keep and work the garden, to be fruitful and to multiply. And instead of that being all joy and no pain, there's pain that comes with fulfilling God's commands. And the worst consequence of all is that the communion enjoyed with God, the dwelling of God in the midst of his people is now broken. And that may sound like an overreaction on God's part, like a a punishment that doesn't fit the crime. They just just ate some fruit, right? But the the issue is not how big the sin is. The problem is not that they just did this little thing instead of doing a, a big, great sin. Remember, we started with a perfectly holy God, so the problem is not what their sin was, but the one they sinned against. They sinned against one who is perfectly holy and just. Uh, If one of my kids goes and steps on a cockroach, there is no punishment in our house. There are kids. There will be rewards at our house if you step on a cockroach. If you use your foot to kick a sibling, there's consequences that come with that. And then there's like a whole nother set of consequences if that foot is used to, say, kick my wife. That just elevates things. And then you do something like kick the president of the United States, and that's outside my jurisdiction. I still have some authority, but I can't really do much for what happens to you there. And if you think about sin against a perfectly holy God, it's not just another step on the ladder. There is an infinite gap between creation and creator. And the sin against a perfectly holy, perfectly just God results in infinite consequence. Sin cannot be in his presence without being obliterated. And so mankind stained now with sin is cast out of the garden and we are in need of salvation. We're no longer enjoying the presence of God in their midst. The consequences are that they must leave. And all of that, that's just the first three chapters of Genesis. And the rest of the Bible is following this trajectory. And the Old Testament especially is answering this question to be revealed in the New Testament. How can a holy God live with broken, sinful creatures? And Paul tells us here, the grace of God has appeared. And again, this is a place where the fact that we have like a play school nativity set sitting under our Christmas tree or that Christmas just has all the you have one sitting on your coffee table or something like that. It can dull the magnitude of what is happening in this salvation. God in love sent his own son. The second person of the Trinity, Trinity, the son of God took on flesh. If you look down to Titus 2.13, what you see here is actually one of the clearest and strongest places in all of Scripture, telling us that Jesus is not just like some superhuman. He's not the first of the created order. He is himself our great God and Savior, 100% man and 100% God. And with Jesus, what we see is God, but we also see a new and a better Adam. He enjoys union and communion with his father. He faces temptation just like Adam does, but there's a vast difference in what happens when he faces that temptation. Where Adam falls and fails, Jesus lives the perfect life. And not just in the desert in his temptation, but throughout his whole life. He lives a perfect life that we should have lived. And then he comes and he gives himself, as Titus 2.14 says, 
He gives himself for us. He was not an unwitting or an unwilling victim of injustice. He laid down his life. And he stood before the wrath of God. Saving sinners with his blood. And if that's the end of this story of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus that Paul would have us know, it is a tragic ending to a self-deluded prophet, but it's not the end. He does not stay dead. Jesus says of himself in John 10, 17 through 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And that's just what happens. By God's power, he is raised in glory and vindication. A testimony to all the world that he is the one true and living God. And he now lives an indestructible life. And the good news of this man's story is not that it is just a really great history lesson. Or something of historical fiction that we can enjoy. The pathway to life now lives in Christ. He offers a way to life with him. Uh, and, and this is something that we are not meant to earn. He says that it is grace that has appeared. There's, there's a movie, uh, several years old now, 20 years old or so, uh, Saving Private Ryan. And at the very, very end, at the close of that movie, I'm sorry if I'm spoiling this for you, but towards the very end, there's a man who, who is gone on a mission to pull someone out of enemy territory to save him. And this man is dying. And he looks at this man he went to go save. And his last words to him are, earn this. Earn this. And I I enjoyed that movie, but I thought that was a heartbreaking, weighty way to end. It even flashes to this man as an old man looking around at his family and saying, have I done good enough? Have I made it? And friends, the dying words of Jesus are not looking to his disciples and saying, earn this. But Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is not something that we are called to earn. It is grace. It is a gift. And it is given to all who are turning from sin, who say, I am not the king of my life. I am not the queen in charge of my existence. I submit my life to you with the empty hands of faith coming to Jesus. And friends, that is our call to you this morning. If you don't know him, if you have tried your whole life to earn some peace, to earn a way to be free from feelings of guilt in your life, aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of that life? Hear the good news that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The good news is that you can know and enjoy life with Christ today. So find me after the service. If you came here or you're sitting by someone that you know is a a Christian, ask them to go to lunch, to talk later this week. We would love nothing more than to give our time to help you know this Jesus and to walk with him. This salvation is for all people, and that means For you, friend. Now, this salvation is for all people, and some people would take that out of context and say, maybe that means that all people are saved regardless of whether they place trust in Jesus, a a teaching we would call universalism. Everybody is in, but, but I don't think that's what Paul is saying here, and it's pretty clear elsewhere in Titus. He says there are people who 
claim to know Jesus with their mouths, but they deny him with their works. So it's not that everyone without exception is saved. Here instead, he is saying that salvation comes to all people without distinction. So there's, there's no category in which you belong that you say, because I am this way, I'm this person, I cannot seek and find salvation in Christ. So think about a, a religion like uh, Scientology. Okay, I don't know a lot about Scientology, but I do know that it takes a lot of steps to kind of get where you need to be to experience full salvation. Anybody can come in and find just some enlightenment, but if you want to make it to like the top tiers where you enjoy all the benefits of what comes, most of the estimates that I looked at said that's going to cost you in giving to the church about $500,000. And so they may say, this is salvation available to you, to all of you. Come on in. But what they're actually saying, what actually ends up saying is this is salvation for the extremely wealthy. Everybody else, you can come in and play for a little bit, but but only that kind of person gets to experience this. But Christianity is vastly different. Just go back into verses 1 through 10 and look at all the people who are addressed there. Salvation in Christ is not something just for the older men and for the older women, for the people who have power and authority or experience. No, he says this is for young men and young women, even bond servants and kids. This is really important. You may sometimes ask your parents for something or that you want to do something, see something, go somewhere. And our loving response to you is wait until you're older. This is not one of those things. We would love, we delight children and you hearing and following Jesus, even at a young age. Brothers and sisters, you will not meet someone who is outside the bounds of God's saving mercy coming to them and pulling them in. From the man who is begging beside the road in downtown Birmingham to the the rich young ruler. From the person standing on the steps of the courtroom shouting about their supposed right to abort their babies to loving your lost neighbor. There is no place where God's arm is so short that he cannot save them. He takes a great delight in bringing people to himself from all types, all walks of life. And brothers and sisters, this is why we work and pray to see the gospel go forward to all people. That's why we just spent time praying for missionaries at Brook Hills taking the gospel into the Middle East and for workers who are there. At, at the senior adult lunch this past Wednesday, David Brown did some trivia for us on Philadelphia history. It led to some very fun conversations that you can ask them about later. But, but there were, at one point, there were a dozen or so missionaries that David just listed, people who had gone out from this church. We should praise God for a legacy of that. And we should pray that he would also continue that. The grace that has come to us, the grace that has come to us as a church, that has come to you, brother and sister, does not stop with us, but it goes out. So we want to give, and we want to pray, and we want to go so that the gospel might go in every corner of the globe, from the hostile territory of Afghanistan to the booming metropolises of China, to the remote tribes of Papua New Guinea and beyond. The grace of God that flows from the cross saves, bringing salvation for all people. And the gospel that is powerful enough to go into every corner of the globe should also penetrate into every nook and cranny, every corner of our lives. 
which is the second thing we see in these verses. The grace of God that flows from the cross sanctifies. The grace of God that flows from the cross sanctifies. We are, we are saved by grace alone, but grace is never alone once it's working in Christ. We see that it produces fruit in the shape of godly lives. We spent much time in the past couple of weeks examining what that looks like. It's what Paul says clearly elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. Now, when we use that word sanctified, that's a churchy kind of word. We can mean a couple of different things. So I just want to pause and say, what, what do we mean by saying that? Being sanctified, made holy. First, we, we can mean it like Paul does in verse 14. Right? There he, he says, Christ gave himself to purify for himself a people. And if you want to put on your theologian hat for just a minute, this is something like what we call positional sanctification, a right standing with God. So that when we are converted and become new creatures in Christ, Christ declares and makes us holy in his sight. He looks at us and sees who we are as his son or daughter. This is like being born into a family. You can think of it this way. Uh, you don't gradually become a member of your family when you're born into one. So when I was born, it wasn't like one day you'll be in Adam's. I was born, and they said, this is Ryan Adams. And so for those who are born again at the moment of your conversion, you belong to the family of God. You are brother and sister, son and daughter. And this idea of being sanctified or, or purified, having right standing with God that he gives to you, seeing you as holy, has massively important ramifications, I think, for the Christian life. For one, it should rightly help us think of ourselves, see ourselves as God sees us. What do you think God sees when he looks at you? If we're honest, I think many of us who are in Christ, maybe especially if you've been in church for a long time, you almost instinctively say that God looks on me with just this constant tinge of disappointment and frustration. We might imagine that we were cleaned up and polished. We had that new Christian shine or smell of a new car analogy. But ever since we've driven off the lot, we've just added dents and scratches. There's tarnish. We're just constantly not looking as good as we used to. And then we come here and we do a prayer of confession and maybe that buffs out some of those problems. I think they're planning on doing another prayer of confession next week because that's just the reality of the Christian life. And we think, well, this is what it is. We have to come back and we do this. But for those who belong to Christ, the answer of what God sees when he looks at you is that you have been purified. You have been sanctified, made holy in God's sight. So that when God the Father looks at you, he does, in mercy and in grace, he does not see the dirty rags that we feel so bound up in. But he sees the righteous robes of his son, Jesus Christ. And so when we go to him in confession, it's, it's not groveling like God is just so angry that we're back here again another week doing another prayer of confession. He knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. And rather, he, he invites us by his mercy to come to him as children who he longs and happily welcomes into his presence. Beyond that, this recognition of God's purifying work should give us greater confidence as we pursue holiness. For those who are in Christ, it gives confidence in pursuing holiness. 
In your desire to please God and holy living, what is the fuel that you're putting into the engine that's driving that pursuit? What's the thing that's making you wake up and say, I want to look more like Jesus this morning? I think it's hard to do much better than what Paul says in verse 14. We'll talk about a few others in a minute, but in verse 14, our God and Savior purified you so that you might be a people for his own possession. He desires you to be his people and to be zealous for good works. That's what he wants of you. Now, if God has already given his greatest gift in sending his son to the point of death, even death on a cross, do you think that he then is going to hold out on you for something that you need to follow him? By no means. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He has, Jesus Christ stands and has a stake in your holiness. He is not an indifferent observer, hoping that you do good just all by your own strength. He is loving. He is God with us, empowering you to walk in holiness. And his purifying you, his giving you holy standing means that he can give you new and better desires. Taking away the worldly passions and building within you zeal for good works. And that may take time. It's not an easy endeavor, but the God who has bought you by his grace is the same one who helps you obey. And the grace that gave you a new heart is the same grace that God uses to sustain you and carry you and keep you running the race that the Lord has set out for you as long as he wills. So that's that's the first way we think about being sanctified and made made pure positionally, made right before Jesus and that is something that should breed confidence and joy in our, in our standing before God. And then flowing from that, we see the second way we can talk about sanctification, which Paul spends much of his time in this letter addressing. It's not about the standing positional sanctification, but progressive, growing more into the likeness of Christ, a, a pursuit of godliness that we're to see in our own lives. This is one reason, at least, why Paul uses the word training there in verse 12, something we talked about even in core training this morning. It's an education of sorts in the ways and the word of God that involves both the the putting to death of our old selves and the putting on, the being trained in the righteousness that flows from Christ. And you see both of those things happening in this text, the turning away and the putting on. So the old has passed away. Those who are saved by Christ are trained to renounce ungodliness And worldly passions, that's the first part of verse 12. If you skip down to verse 14, we are redeemed from all lawlessness. And in the place of this old man, we see a new creation. Living self-controlled, upright, godly lives, zealous for good works. So this, this kind of sanctification is not like being born into a family, but beginning to look more like your family members. The apple does not fall far from the tree, they say. So maybe that's physical appearance. He has his mother's eyes or his father's dimples. Many times it's the way that the things that parents or grandparents even love just naturally filters down into the lives of their children. You never have to tell your kids what team you cheer for on Saturdays. They they learn that growing up and see that. On a more important note, something that we've just noticed even in the life of this church, I would say that the, the hospitality that you have shown to Laura and myself and to many here today who are visitors still. That kindness and hospitality that you've seen there is something that we've seen in the lives of your children. 
And so in, on Sundays, when we go back and we see friends at Christ Fellowship Church and they're asking us, how are, how are things going? And then they're asking us, how are things with kids? And we say, we, we, we walked in the door and within 30 seconds they had friends and they were gone. It was great. That, that, that belonging to the family means they're starting to look like you. And this type of growing in sanctification, this is what it looks like as we grow and belong to the family of God. We begin to bear the family resemblance. Belonging with, to the family with Christ as your head means our lives take a certain shape and we grow more into his image as we continue to walk with him through the years. And as a very side plug, we just started today a series in core training on spiritual disciplines, habits of grace to even help us think about how we do that well. I encourage you to attend. Now, there are a a variety of different motivations, things that you can grab hold of in your desire to live a life of obedience. There's there's lots of places in the Bible you can go and say, I want to be obedient. Help me do that. But this short passage really asks us to look in a couple of different directions to say, why is it and how am I helped and motivated in living a life of godliness? If you just look at the flow of the passage, you see it start from the appearance of God's grace the cross, and it very naturally, Paul just kind of swings into saying, and that's what we want to put to death the old man and give us new life in Christ. And then he, he turns and says, as we wait for the coming glory of God, and then swings right back into living holy lives because he's bought us and redeemed us. This passage is telling us we look back to the work of Christ on the cross, and we look forward to the coming glory of Christ, and those are just intertwined. So that wanting to look more like Christ is not just devoid from the gospel, but glances at this truth are what drive us. So if you want to live a godly life that is pleasing to the Lord, this passage would tell you to raise your eyes and to look back at the cross. And there you will see the love of your Savior poured out for you. And as you see that, it is not earned this, do this now earning this, but your heart wells up with gratitude. To express itself in obedience. Let the peace of God that you enjoy with God through Christ drive you towards holiness. If you want to live a godly life pleasing to the Lord, this passage would say to lift your sight and to look forward to our blessed hope of seeing the glory of our great God and Savior. That's what we read elsewhere in 1 John 3, 2 through 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. As we think of that heavenly meeting, we long to hear the welcome of our Savior. Well done, good and faithful servant. The joy that we anticipate at that meeting should then drive us towards holiness. Again, there are other, other, other motivations in the Bible, but, but if, you're, if your inclination like mine is often just to self-reflect, to always be looking in, this passage reminds us to raise your eyes. For every, every look to yourself, take ten looks to Christ. Let that drive you in holiness. David Peterson, uh, a, a biblical scholar, I think sums this idea up well. Those who are cleansed. And consecrated by Christ, those the backwards looks, those who have been cleansed and who look forward to sharing the perfection of holiness in his presence forever, will pursue holiness as a lifestyle. The grace of God that flows from the cross sanctifies God's people. 
And while our looking forward to his coming is a motivating force for holiness, it's also a joy that helps us to persevere. So point number three, the grace of God that flows from the cross secures his people. Paul says God's grace is training us to live godly lives as we wait, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I don't know anybody who likes waiting. Waiting is often just a period of uncertainty. You're waiting to get the score back on your chemistry test. You're waiting to hear the results of a biopsy. You're waiting in uncertainty of what's to come. But the waiting that Paul speaks about here is not quite like that waiting. This has a sure and a certain outcome. This waiting is more like anticipation. This is waiting for Christmas Day. Now, you may want to arrive sooner. You may be impatient, but you know that it's coming. And for those in Christ, for you who have been saved by God, the promise that is held out for you is that this appearing does come, that it is certain, and you are held with the steadfast arm of Jesus. He will hold you fast. Or as we sang earlier, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. It's grace that brought me safe this far, and grace will lead me home. And this grace brings peace in the midst of suffering. This forward-looking grace is the thing that helps us have hope in the midst of sorrow. It doesn't abandon us from pursuing holiness, but it gives us strength in our lowest points when the valley of the shadow of death seems longest. This grace that God gives will lead you still. And from beginning to the end, the message of the gospel, the message that he has for us is one of grace. Grace is not just the entryway of the Christian life that we experience once and then we hope that that just gave us enough that we hold on to it desperately until we make it all the way home. No, it is, it is grace that saves and brings you into the Christian life. And that it is grace that sanctifies and that holds you throughout your Christian life. And it is grace that will hold you and secure you all the way to the very end. And all of that, all of that, ultimately meets in one person. Jesus himself, who says that he is the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He is the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for the sheep and invites them in. And he's also the one who, with his rod and staff, guide and protect his people. And he is the one who we look forward to seeing and who will bring us safely home and greet us on that final day. Praise his name. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that you have showed us in Christ. We thank you that by the cross you have purchased a people from yourself, from every nation and tribe and tongue. And we count it grace that many of us here belong to that people. We ask, Lord, that you would give us your grace and secure us as we continue to walk. Lord, whether that is through the joys that some are experiencing now or through heartache. Lord, would you, by your mercy, help us. And we ask, Lord, that the glorious coming that we look forward to, that that hope would drive us towards you more and more. 
We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.